Ever since the first tick-tock of time You brought order to a world undefined Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Our, Our teaching team, team is made up of men and women, women who love asking probing questions of each week's scripture portion. To which our community responds with curiosity, courage, and a desire to, to expand, expand in faith, faith hope, and hope, and love. We follow the Revised Common Lectionary, and we follow the church calendar, because, because they, they anchor us in something, something which can, can hold us, no matter what life throws our way. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us. Everywhere. Cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. Good morning. Uh, the second scripture is from Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword rages in their cities. It consumed their oracle priests and devours because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning away from me. To the Most High they call, but he does not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zabim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord who roars like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like the birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria and I will return them to their homes, says the Lord. The word of the Lord. Uh, I, I want to start today quickly, and I will be brief about this, um, but I do want to say a couple of words of thanks. As Katie mentioned, technically tomorrow is the last day of my internship, which means that for all intents and purposes, today's the last day of my internship. Uh, and it has been an incredible six months for me. Um, it has flown by. It barely seems like I started two weeks ago, and it's actually been six months. Uh, it did not go how I expected it to go, which is both a good and a bad thing, but when you're two weeks into a six-month internship and your senior pastor announces he's leaving for another job, that's a curveball. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it, it, was, it was interesting, and yet it reinforced this belief that I have and, and reminded me of this belief that uh, God brings good out of all things. And so there were plenty of opportunities for me to do things that I may not have been able to do had Steve stayed, which doesn't mean I didn't want Steve here, but it just means that given the circumstances that we have, it, it worked out uh, for my good and for the good of hopefully the church. This place has quite literally changed my life. Uh, the eight years that I've been here, the 10 years that I've been you know, exploring a journey with God, 
I am in such a different place right now than I was five years ago, than I was 10 years ago, uh, and that is thanks to the people here. The staff have been incredible to me. Will and Rebecca and Allie and Kara have done so much to embrace me and to help me and to help me learn things. And if I've learned nothing else, I've learned how much I still need to learn about being you know, a lead pastor and being a senior pastor and running a church. So um, it's been an incredible experience. The people here that have helped me with various assignments over the five years, you know who you are. If I started listening names, I'd leave somebody out. But I want to thank you guys as well. Um, it's been an amazing run. It really, really has. And I'm super excited about what the future may hold. As you've maybe seen in the announcements or in the email, yes, there is a position being worked on. We take care of Kara first because she's the lead, and that's I'm a thousand percent behind that. Uh, and then, you know, hopefully, sometime in the fairly near future, there's a spot for me on staff, and uh, and I'm excited about the possibilities of what that could bring. So I just want to take a couple of minutes and say thank you, uh, thank you, thank you very much, honestly. Uh, thank you. Um, and enough about me. Let's talk about God because that's why we're here. Uh, <laughs> that's why we're here. I want to go through this passage again. Uh, first of all, thank you, Joan, for nailing all those names. Um, I actually apologized to her before the service because every time I pick a passage and there's a bunch of names in it like this, it gets, it gets hairy real, real quick. But I want to go through it because I want to just quickly touch on some of those things and hopefully you know, bring a little bit of understanding to them so we can get them out of the way and get at what I think is the core of this passage. So if you have your liturgy, take that out and let's look at this passage again. We'll start in verse 1. When Israel was a child... I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. That's clearly a reference to the Exodus, right? That's a formative experience in the history of Israel's nation, uh, and so that's where he's going to start. This is Hosea, a prophet, speaking with the voice of God. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 2, the more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to idols. One of the things God asked Israel as part of this covenant was to worship God and to only worship God, not to worship other nations' gods that are around them. And one of the ways that Israel failed was in terms of commerce and in terms of uh, trying to find political stability, they started worshiping other gods alongside Yahweh or even in lieu of Yahweh, and that's what he's referencing here. Baal is just a kind of generic term for Semitic gods that were being worshiped in that area at that time. Verse 3 Yet it was I who, talk, who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. You may recall about three weeks ago, I was preaching on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I talked about how there was a split in the nation of Israel, right? There was a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. And that came as a result of King Solomon and King Solomon's son, Rehoboam, treating the northern tribes poorly. There was a political schism and that northern, northern tribes formed their own nation, which they called Israel or was also referenced as Ephraim. So every time you see Ephraim in there, we're talking about this northern kingdom, okay? And the northern kingdom's capital was Samaria, which is why it uh, tied into the Good Samaritan. So in verses 3 and 4, you start to see God take this parental uh, uh, posture towards Israel, right? In verse 4, it says, I, let them, I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them, and I fed them. This is God recognizing his people and acting and posturing himself towards his people as a parent would, as a father would, and as a mother would. Because he's desperate to get them back on track. He's desperate to bring them back to where they had covenanted together to begin with. Verse 5, they shall return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria shall be their king because they have refused 
to return to me. Remember, repent just means to turn back. That's all God has ever asked us to do, is turn back to the path God has laid out for us in our life. Returning to the land of Egypt, he took them out of the land of Egypt, he took them out of a sense of oppression, and now because of their choices, because of their leaving the path that God had laid out for them, the natural consequence of that is that they're going to end up back in oppression again, that they're going to end up back suffering under another nation. That's what returning to Egypt means. What nation is that going to be? Well, it's going to be the kingdom of Assyria. That's why we see that Assyria was another nation towards the north there that conquered the kingdom of Israel in 722 BC, I think is when that happened. So you often think of prophets and prophecy as predictive. We think of that these days. That's not really what was going on. This was a warning. This was Hosea speaking to that northern kingdom and saying, if you keep going the way that you're going right now, this is the natural consequence. This is what's going to happen. Please stop. Please turn back. That's the pleading that God is doing with that parental uh, posture that we talked about a little bit earlier. And it continues into verse 6. The sword rages in their cities. It consumes their oracle priests and devours because of their scheme. There will be violence. There will be a lack of peace. There will be a lack of shalom if you keep going how you're going. That's the warning here. Verse 7, my people are bent on turning away from me to the most high they call, but he does not raise them up at all. What I mentioned earlier in terms of sacrificing to the Baals, not only would they worship other gods, but they'd sometimes worship other gods alongside Yahweh as though he was just part of the pantheon, which in a way is almost worse than not worshiping Yahweh at all in God's. So when they're calling to the most high, they're calling to Yahweh, but they're calling to Yahweh and to all of these other Baals at the same time. And Yahweh's like, no, that's not how this works. Sorry, guys. But then in verse 8 and 9, you really start to see the wrestling that's going on. And this is, these are the two verses I'm going to kind of focus on as we, we go forward here. Verse 8, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Adma and Zeboim were two other cities. We often think of Sodom and Gomorrah as the cities God destroyed because they were so sinful. Adma and Zemboim are just two other cities that faced destruction and were destroyed because they left the path of God, because they didn't do what God had covenanted with them or what they had covenanted with God to do. But God's wrestling here because he's seeing Israel go that way and he doesn't want to see those natural consequences that affected Adma and Zemboim happen to Israel. So there's, that's where this compassion, that's where this idea of, of executing first fierce anger or not executing fierce anger, as we see in verse 9, come up. Verse 9 says, I will, not, I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. That's a key phrase we're going to come back to here in a minute. I will not come in wrath. Verse 10, they shall go after the Lord who roars like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. Gee, I wonder where C.S. Lewis got the idea for Aslan from. It's not the only verse, but it's one of them. Verse 12, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies in the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. So that's these, uh, these 12 or 11 verses that we were looking at today. And hopefully that takes some of those words <clears throat> that are a little confusing or that we're not so familiar with out of the way. Because I want to talk about verse 8 and 9 and kind of the presence of God in those verses. When I first came to faith as an adult, I did so because when I came to the Bible with kind of an open mind and an open heart and was really listening for what God was trying to tell me, I found a God unlike the God I thought I was going to find there. I thought that the Christian God was an angry God. I thought that the Christian God was a God who was ready to clobber people who stepped a toe out of line. 
That's the God I thought I was going to find. And instead, what I found was a God of compassion and love and grace and mercy. And I found it everywhere. Sometimes we like to separate and say, well, the Old Testament God's the angry, vicious, violent God, and the New Testament God's the grace, mercy, love, and compassion God. And there was a gentleman named Marcion back in the first couple of centuries of the church that actually wanted to separate those two, and it was a big fight in the church about whether those were two separate gods or actually the same God. The church decided they're actually the same God, and I think correctly so, because if you look hard enough, if you look in the Old Testament, if you look in this passage, you can see that grace-filled, merciful, compassionate, loving God trying to break through. And when I found that God, I started preaching about that God because I wanted to share that vision with other people. Hey, look, not that I uniquely found this, but I was excited to have found it, and I wanted to show other people, look, this is, this is what's really going on here. All this other stuff that you're hearing about, that's not the thing. This is the thing. And I got so excited about preaching, I went to seminary for five years because I wanted more tools and I wanted more ways to express that and I wanted to be able to do that better than I did when I first started preaching. But what I found through seminary, through relationships, through this church, is that not only people who are skeptical, not only people who are not already believers need to see that vision, though they do, but there are people who have been at church their whole lives. There are people who have grown up in this church who desperately need to see a vision of God as a loving, compassionate, merciful, grace-filled God. And we'll dig into that a little bit more in a second. Because here's the thing. It seems simple to say, but it's important to hear, and it's important to hear on a regular basis, God loves you. Period. Full stop. God loves you. Desperately. Deeply. God loves you. And if I never preach anything else the rest of my career, if I only ever preach that sentence, I kind of think I've done my job. I kind of think I've done what God has called me to do. Because God desperately wants to be in relationship with each of us. That's the entire point of the covenant. That's the entire point of coming together as community is the relationship aspect of it. God is, I will preach a God that wants to be in relationship. I will preach a God that knows each of us deeply and knows our faults and knows our shortcomings and knows the ways in which we need to improve, but I will preach a God that doesn't want to shame or guilt us into that improvement. The God that I find in the Bible, the God that I truly believe lies at the heart of Scripture is a God who desperately wants to pour love into each and every one of us to the point where we overflow that with that love towards other people. The change comes from love. The change doesn't come from, from guilt and from shame. And yet we get that backwards way, way too often. Yes, there are plenty of violent, ugly, vicious portrayals of God in the Old Testament. They exist, they are real, and there's some in the New Testament too, I'll be honest with you. Those, those depictions of God are real and they exist, and I don't deny their existence at all. But I do believe that revelation, God revealing God's self to us, doesn't come in one big massive download. We aren't Neo in the Matrix where we can plug a thing into the back of our heads and in five minutes we know everything there is to know about Kung Fu. That's not how this works. Revelation is progressive. As human beings, we evolve and we grow and we improve. And as we grow and we improve, our ability to understand and deepen our relationship with God grows and improves. And we see some of that even in this passage right here. Because of course the ancient Israelites thought God was vicious and angry and violent. Because literally everybody around them worshipped a pantheon of gods who were vicious and angry and violent and often quite capricious. 
They would just mess with people because they could, and they were bored, and they decided to that day. That was the kind of belief in God that was existent all around ancient Israel. So, of course, some of that leaked into their faith. But as they got this concept of a single creator God, as they started to investigate and to build relationship with that God, their understanding of that God grew and evolved. And you can see that in this passage. Again, if you look at verses 8 and 9, remember this is the prophet Hosea who's speaking with the voice of the Lord. But you can see Hosea sort of working his way through this as, we go, as he goes through. Again, go back to verse 8. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? And how can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. You can almost feel Hosea thinking his way through this and trying to convince him, do I have the courage as a prophet, as God is inspiring me with this picture of a loving, compassionate, grace-filled, merciful God, do I have the courage to believe that in the midst of all this violence and all of this ugliness, well, I'm going to knock this thing over, I swear, all of this ugliness and all of this violence, do I have the courage to step forward and believe that this picture of a loving, compassionate, grace-filled, merciful God might actually be true? Because in the midst of everybody else thinking one thing to go the other way takes a lot of courage. And you can see him wrestling his way through this. He even reverts back a little bit in verse 9, where I will, speaking as God's voice, I will not execute my first fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. Well, is the, is the destruction that has happened a result of God's actions or a result, result of those cities' actions, right? We talk about this all the time, that sin is the natural, con- or the consequences of sin follow the sin. They come with their own natural consequences. If you put your hand on the hot burner, you get hurt. That isn't God reaching down and poking you and saying, no, you shouldn't do that. Here's some pain for you. That's a natural consequence of the sin. These people are, are violating the covenant that they made with God. And God is pleading with them, please come back. Please come back to this path because I've set a path forward in creation that leads to the greatest of human flourishing. If you go over there, it's not because my ego gets bruised that I have to punish you, but you're going in the wrong way and there are consequences that are going to follow that sin. Look at what happened to Zeboim. Look what happened to Adma. This is what's coming. Assyria is going to conquer you if you keep going down this path. Trust me. Believe in me. Follow me, and we'll get to the best place we can possibly get to. That's what God's begging. And you can see Hosea working his way through this. But here's the thing. It's not just in the Old Testament, right? We talked about this earlier. There are teachings in Christian churches today that teach a violent, angry, wrath-filled God right? There are things like, there's the idea of penal substitutionary atonement. Why did Christ have to sacrifice himself for us? And there's a neo-reform movement that will take that to its furthest extreme, which displays a God who was so angry at sin that he just had to kill somebody. And he didn't much care who he killed, he just needed to kill somebody. And humanity, we deserved it, but super Jesus stepped in the way and took the hit for us. And now we're all, you know, saved and, and this isn't wonderful, and aren't we glad that God didn't kill us and killed Jesus instead? Now try to reconcile that in your head with a God of mercy and compassion and love and grace. It's, it's mental gymnastics I can't do. There's also people who will teach you in that neo-reform movement about eternal conscious torment, who will say that God created everybody and designated at very creation, this group of people, you are all going to go to hell at the end of the day and burn in hell, and I'm going to save this little small portion of it, and aren't they lucky? 
Aren't I a merciful, wonderful God for saving this small portion when I actually created everybody with the very intention of sending them? Again, the kind of mental and spiritual gymnastics you have to do to make that work. It's beyond me. It's beyond me. But then we wonder why people are leaving the church. We teach that sort of thing, and then we wonder why people you know, are, are, are going through these deconstruction phases. That's a big boogeyman term in evangelical circles right now, deconstruction. Oh, no, we can't have that. When the pandemic started, I don't know if you guys remember, but Steve encouraged us to get together in little kind of coffee clutch groups right before the service and just trying to create a sense of community when we couldn't actually physically be together. And so I became part of this group of five people. The other four of them had all grown up in evangelical culture, and I had And so to listen to the stories, to listen to the burdens that they were still carrying these many years later from the teachings of that period of time, purity culture screwed people up so bad. Oh my goodness. Three of the four of them now don't come here anymore and are in various stages of dealing with trying to get that burden off of their shoulders. And I, and I 100% support them in doing that because it is garbage teaching that hurts people. And that's not what we're here for. There is an entire world out there just waiting to tell you how worthless and terrible and unimportant you are. When you come here on a Sunday, when you're looking to get nourished by God, and then the teaching is, no, you're worthless and you're completely unworthy to be here and aren't you lucky that God has picked out this small portion to save you? Why, why would you do that? That's why I can get that every other day of the week. Why am I coming here to get that? The point coming here is to get nourished by a God who de- deeply and desperately loves you, to be reminded that you do have worth, that you were created to be good. And yes, we fall short, and yes, we, we make mistakes. God doesn't want to sit there and stomp us like an ant every time we make a mistake. He wants to wrap his arms around us and say, you are loved, and you are here to love other people and I need you to do a little bit better. That's what God's trying to tell us here. That's what God's trying to tell us. So as many times as I'm given a pulpit to preach, I will stand here and very clearly say, all of that garbage teaching, you get to put that down. And I've tried to teach that, or I've tried to share that with the folks in that group, and to various degrees, they're willing to listen. But you get to put that down, and you don't have to let go of Jesus, and you don't have to let go of God in order to do that. Look at this passage. Look at this passage and see that loving, grace-filled, merciful, compassionate God working its way through a time and a place that was full of violence and ugliness and vicious portrayals of God. And then when you hear teachings like that, when you hear Christian pastors who are telling you how horrible you are and how wretched you are and how you don't deserve the love of God, but God's grace-filled and is going to love you anyway, try and see that heart of God even leaking through that teaching, struggling to get through that teaching, struggling to get a hold of you and say, I love you deeply, desperately, and with all of my heart. And all I want is to pour my love into you. And sometimes that gets really hard when you're carrying all of this baggage. So guess what? You get to put that down. You get to set that aside and you don't have to set aside Jesus and God in order to do it. God is a God of love and compassion and mercy and grace, and I will repeat that 15 more times before the day is over. Because we need that reminder. We need that reminder on a regular, consistent basis because there's a lot of other voices out there that are going to try and tell you something different. But look at the passage. Sit with this passage this week, especially those two verses. Sit with them, meditate on them, pray on them, 
Ask God to fill your heart with the truth and the image of God. And you'll see it. You'll see it coming through those passages. You'll see it in any other passage that you look at in the Bible. God is there. He is present. And he's, all he's trying to do is love on you. Yes, we make mistakes. Yes, we need to get better. That's what discipleship and community is all about. Holding each other accountable. Trying to be better. Trying to better let God love us so we can love other people. But he doesn't do that through shame. He doesn't do that through guilt. Because shame and guilt can't change the world. Only love can do that. When you let God's love truly enter your heart, when you have the courage to believe in that loving, grace-filled, compassionate vision of God, God will fill your heart with that love to overflowing and you can let that love overflow to other people. And that is the Christian, Christian message. That's what changes the world. That's what Jesus brought and that is what Jesus asks us to bring to the rest of the community. Amen? Amen. God is a God of love. Feel that love every single day. Endings are a place where life is Thank you for listening to the Genesis West podcast. If, if you, you find, find yourself, yourself nearby, nearby on Sunday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. We meet at Elam Church Center in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. If you, if have, you have any, any questions or would like to connect with us, please visit us at www.genesiscove.org.